All right, well, good morning. Good to see you guys today. Um, it's great to be here to worship alongside of you. Um, worthy is the Lamb indeed. Uh, worthy is the Lamb. So, man, really enjoyed the time of worship this morning in song. And now we're going to turn to worship God by hearing His Word. And John chapter 3 is our text this morning. John chapter 3. Um, and God's Word is important to us here at Eastridge. So however you have God's Word, maybe you've got print copy, maybe you have your iPhone or your iPad or whatever other device that you might access God's Word on, I invite you to do that now. John chapter 3, we're continuing our series, Captivated by Jesus. We're working through the Gospel of John. And, and this morning we're going to answer the question, how do we enter into the kingdom of God? How do we enter into the kingdom of God. I'm going to read uh, the text. And we're going to pray. And then we'll dive in. We'll read from verse 1 down to 21. Now there was, a na- there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning thankful for this opportunity to gather together as a church to hear your word, Lord. And as we do that, as we, as we open up the text, as we work through a familiar passage to many of us, God, may you give us fresh eyes to see. May you call us to yourself. May you show us 
what it is in this passage that should captivate us this week. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that there are familiar routes that you take on a regular basis. For me, it's, it's driving from my house to the church. You know, I go to the end of my neighborhood, I take a left, I go to the light, I take a right and go down about a mile or so and turn into the parking lot. It's a familiar route that I take and I'm sure that there are many routes that you take that, that are familiar as well. And, and even though that is a short trip and even though I've only been doing that for a couple of months now, I, I, I get on autopilot when I start to head the direction of the church. And if I'm not going to church, like if I'm taking my son to school in the morning, we drive by the church and I have to consciously tell myself, don't turn in now, don't turn in now. You know, just, you gotta go a little bit further and you gotta take your son to school and then you can turn around and you can come back. I'm sure that happens to you as well. I'm sure that you experience that as well, particularly when you're heading to places that you go often. We go on autopilot and we do that. When we do that, we tend to miss a lot of the things along the way. And so maybe it's your drive to work and there are all these billboards and you've seen them a thousand times and you just forget that they're there and you don't even realize when, when they've been changed out. Or maybe there's a store that you drive by often and, and, and you just kind of forget that it's there and, and you drive by and, and you don't even realize that, that it's closed down until somebody at work says it or or you show up there because maybe it's your favorite dry cleaner or something like that that you haven't gone to in a long time and, and now you need to get your clothes dry cleaned and they're not even open anymore. You see, we miss a lot of things along the way when we go to familiar places. And that's because we become passive spectators rather than active participants. And that's not always good when, when you're driving, right? If you're not active, you may miss the car that is stopped in front of you and run into the back of it. Or you might miss that, that child that runs out into the street and you fail to stop. You see, this is why over 50% of car wrecks happen less than five miles from our home. Familiarity breeds passivity, which is why it's important that we be active when we are driving. And just as it is important that we be active drivers, it is also important that we be active readers of God's word, particularly when we encounter passages that are familiar to us. And usually when that happens, when we encounter those familiar passages, what do we do? We, we lean back. We become passive. We think, you know, I've read this passage a thousand times. I've, I've maybe even heard it preached. So I may have opened up a commentary or two. I know what this passage is, is all about. And you know, today is, is one of those passages that you might be tempted to think that about. It's one that is most likely to be familiar to many of you, especially if you've been in the church for any length of time. John 3.16. That is the first verse that I ever memorized as a child. You could wake me up at 2 a.m. in the morning, half asleep, I could tell you the verse. And I'm sure that many of you, if you've been in church, you could probably do the same. And, and if you've been a Christian for even a short period of time, John 3.16 is probably a verse you've memorized. Even if you are not a Christian and you're just here today checking Christianity out, you've probably heard John 3.16. You've at least seen it posted on posters and held up at games and things like that, but but while John 3.16 might be a, a familiar verse to many of us, the context in which it lives may not be as familiar. You see, we often forget that verses exist in context. Context is important. In order for us to really understand what a verse means, we need to look at its context, not just its immediate context, but also the context that, that of where it lies in the entire Bible. Context is important. And we must understand the context in which John 3.16 lies. And so today I want 
I want you to approach this passage with fresh eyes. I want you to be active rather than passive. I want you to, to lean forward rather than leaning back. This passage can speak to you today even if you are a believer. You see, there's this idea that, that John chapter three is, is only for those who are non-believers, that, that it's an evangelism passage. It's for those who need Jesus, not, not for those who already have Jesus. Today's passage is for both believers and for non-believers. It's meant to do something in both of us. So what does it tell us? What is it trying to drive us towards? When this passes, Jesus is addressing a man who would be considered a religious insider. Look at verse one with me. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He would have been thought of by many in Judaism as this religious insider, someone who has it all figured out, someone who is certainly a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus does not address him as if he is an insider. Jesus addresses him as if he is a religious outsider. Not, not an outsider in the sense that, that he's a pagan or that, that he is a Gentile, not like the woman at the well in John chapter four that we'll look at. No, he, he knows the scriptures well. He's memorized many of them. He's a learned man. He knows God's word. He's a Jew. He's not just any Jew. He is a Pharisee. He is a ruler of the Jews. He would have been considered by many in his day as a religious insider. And many of you here today might be considered a religious insider. You've gone to church your whole life. I mean, maybe you've practically been, been born in the pew. You've read God's word you may even know it well, but, but being a religious insider doesn't make you any more a part of the kingdom than it made Nicodemus any more a part of the kingdom. Religious insiders need the gospel just as much as religious outsiders do. And so if being a religious insider doesn't get you into the kingdom, then how? How do we get into the kingdom of God? Well, verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he does this possibly to avoid what other people might think about him. I mean, here's Jesus. He hasn't gone to the same seminaries as Nicodemus. He's not, you know, a Pharisee. He's really not really anybody in, in Judaism at all. And, and so maybe he comes to Jesus at night because he wants to, to avoid what other people might think about him. Or, or maybe, just maybe Nicodemus wanted some time with Jesus. Jesus is a busy guy. During the days out, he's healing, he's preaching, he's teaching, his crowd surrounded him. Nicodemus had some important questions that he wants to ask him and, and he wants to be able to spend a little bit of time with him. And so maybe he comes to him at night for that. Either way, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes to him at night and he comes to him because he recognizes that all of the miracles that Jesus has done clearly point to him as being from God. I mean, we looked at last week where Jesus is at the wedding in Cana and, and he turns water into wine. And then you go a little bit further in, in, in chapter two there and you see that, that Jesus goes to the Passover and he goes to the temple and he, and he drives people out with a whip and then he tells them like, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And then he does all of these signs and wonders and miracles at, at the Passover feast and, and all of these people are coming to Jesus and they're believing in Jesus. And so here's Nicodemus and he's like, certainly this guy is from God. He couldn't have been doing any of these things no other way. And, and he comes to him because he wants an explanation. He wants to know 
He wants Jesus to teach him the truth about life and and about salvation. Clearly, Nicodemus is open-minded to Jesus. He doesn't care that Jesus isn't up in the upper echelons of Judaism, that he's not a Pharisee alongside of him. He hasn't written him off. He's coming to Jesus. He's seeking answers. And, and maybe that's some of you today. Maybe you're coming here today admitting that I'm, you're not a believer. But you want answers and you, you've heard about Christianity. You've heard about Jesus. And you're here today. You're seeking answers about truth in life, how you might gain salvation. What is the right plan? What is the right way to live for God so that he might accept me? Maybe those are some of the questions that you're asking today. And Jesus has an answer for you. But it might not be the answer that you were prepared to hear. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so here's Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him and he's at these pleasantries and he's like, hey, rabbi, we know that you're this great teacher. And, and Jesus is like, look, man, let's just, let's just cut to the chase. Like, I don't want to go back and forth and all this. Like, let's just, let's cut to the chase. I know why you're here. I know that you want to know how you can enter into the kingdom of God. How can you gain salvation? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to know how you might be saved. Deep down inside, well, we know that there is something wrong with this world. We long for change. We long for a better life. We long for eternity. We know that, that, that we're not supposed to die, that there's something wrong with that, that we are created for life. We want to know, how can we live forever? That's a universal question, one that man has been asking since the beginning. And Jesus has an answer. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want eternal life, you must be born again. And hearing that, many of you might respond like, like Nicodemus does in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, is that what Jesus means by being born again? Is Jesus teaching some sort of form of reincarnation where, where you can have life, eternal life, you can enter into the kingdom in the next life? Or is he teaching some sort of weird thing where, where you might literally enter into your mother's womb again and be born again? Is that what Jesus is teaching? No. Look at the text in verse 5. That's right. No. <laughs> he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Jesus tells him, I'm not solely talking about a natural birth here. You're not, you're not going to enter back into your mother's womb. I'm not talking about reincarnation. It's not about the next life. You have to be physically born to be a part of the kingdom, yes. This is where the idea of water comes in in this chapter. Many people believe as you look through the Bible that water refers to your physical birth. But apart from being physically born, he also talks about a, a spiritual birth. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he says, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this is where Christianity and all the other world religions begin to, to part ways. You see, our other religions, they, they want to tie salvation to our works, what we have and, and have not done in this life. But, but it's not all about what you have done. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born of the water and the Spirit in order to gain eternal life, he, he's, he's throwing out the idea that our works can earn us salvation. 
You see, nothing that you have done in the past really counts towards getting you into the kingdom of heaven. Not your family of origin, not your good deeds, not your church attendance or your civic involvement. Nothing that you have done in the past counts at all. And that can be a hard pill to swallow, especially if you've been, if you bought into the idea that your good works can earn you favor with God. I mean, imagine, here's Nicodemus. This guy has done everything right. He has spent his entire life memorizing scripture, becoming a Pharisee, keeping the law, keeping the rules. And Jesus is saying, none of that stuff matters, Nicodemus. Jesus is saying to us, none of that stuff matters saying that you don't deserve salvation anymore than someone who has never done any of those works. We all have the same need and that can be hard for us to accept. You know, early on in my ministry, I preached a message explaining that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? Everyone, everyone has the same exact need. Nobody stands above another person. Nobody needs less of Jesus's grace than anybody else. And to drive this point home, I said that that your need for salvation is no different than a serial killer who has been convicted and is waiting on death row for the state to execute them. Your need of salvation is no different than them. We all need God's grace and we all need the same measure of God's grace. Now, after that message, I noticed that there was this one lady in this one family who had been coming very regular. They, they just faded off. They, they quit coming to church. And not too long after I noticed that they quit coming, I, I saw the husband and I said, hey, what's, what's going on, man? Like, you know, you guys are pretty regular. You're not coming to church. It's been several months now. I mean, what's, what's going on? It, it's more than just being on vacation. It's more than just being sick. There's something that's going on. What, what is going on? And then he's like, look, it's not me. Uh, I, I agree with what you're saying. I agree with what you're doing. I agree with what, what you're saying. It's my wife. I mean, you know, spiritual leader there, not really, not really working for him and his family. That's another sermon for another day. <laughs> He's quickly said, look, my wife, she, she doesn't agree. She, she, she can't get over the fact that, that, that a serial killer sitting on death row deserves salvation just as much as she does. She needs the same measure of grace as, as they do. She's never killed anyone. She's never killed multiple people. She, she's never done any heinous crime. She's lived a good life her entire life. She, she can't believe that her need is the same as this person on death row. And so she walked away from the church. And why'd she do that? She did it because she thought that she was really better than she was. She couldn't accept the fact that her goodness did not earn her any favor with Jesus whatsoever, that we all have the same need. Well, that's bad news for the moralist. I mean, that's pretty good news for the one who has done a lot of wrong in their life, who would admit that their life is messed up. You see, there are a lot of people out there who say, look, I, I, I know what you're saying, pastor, but, but I can't become a Christian. And you ask why? Well, because I've just done so much stuff in my life that God would never be able to forgive me. But the hole that I've dug is too deep for me ever to crawl out of. The debt that I owe is too much. I can never pay it back. I've just been too bad. There's no way that God would ever love me. There's no way that God would ever pour his grace out on me. 
That's not true. We all have the same need. The one who lives the most moral lifestyle and the one who lives the most licentious lifestyle, we all have the same need. And Jesus says that need is you must be born again. Jesus is not calling us to traditional morality or religion. He's not calling us to be a better person. He's not calling us to pull up our bootstraps and try harder. Instead, he's calling us to something that is totally different. He is calling us to experience a new birth. Instead, it's not about us breaking. It's not about us keeping the rules. Instead, it's about a new life, one that is given to us by God. You see, if we're gonna enter into the kingdom, we must be born again. Being born again is not something that we can do on our own or something that we can do at all. And so how? How are we born again? I mean, think about your own birth. How did it occur? Did you go to your parents and say, hey, I think that I'm ready to be born again. Dad, take mom on a date and let's get this party started. <laughs> that, that is not how it happened, was it? It didn't happen that way because you were absolutely incapable of doing that. You weren't born yet. You couldn't reason. You couldn't talk. You can't plan or bring about your own physical birth, and that is the true of your spiritual birth as well. If you're a Christian here today, it's not because you went to God and said, hey God, I think that I am ready to be born again. Just like you can't say that to your parents, you can't say that to God because you are incapable. And what makes you incapable of saying that to God? Well, you're incapable because you're dead in your sins. You're unable to choose spiritual good over evil. Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If you call yourself a believer here today, that is a picture of who you once were. You are, you are a dead man walking. You cared absolutely nothing about God. You cared only about yourself. You were in bondage to sin. You were incapable of choosing that which is spiritually good. The passage doesn't end there. And thankfully it doesn't end there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are incapable of participating in our spiritual birth because we are spiritually dead. But God loves us so much. God cares for us so much that he comes to us and he makes us, he literally makes us alive in Christ. Don't miss the remarkable aspect of this. God gives those who are dead in their sins, those who are incapable of turning to him, who live in absolute rebellion to him, God gives them spiritual life. He causes them to be born again. Don't miss the remarkable aspect of that. 
just how amazing God's grace is. We sing about God's amazing grace. This is how amazing God's grace is. His gift of salvation to us. And how does that happen? How are we born again? Well, by the Spirit's work in our life. Look at verse 5 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Spirit's work in our life is, is not do anything that we have done. No works, no prayer. The Spirit does not work in our life because we've chosen God. We contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We cannot control the Spirit just like we cannot control the wind. We don't, we don't go outside and say, you know, it's kind of hot today. I'd really love some cool breeze to blow on me in my backyard. Don't, not, not my neighbor, me. Man, it'd be great. I'd love to be able to do that. Cool 70 degrees here in Texas when it's 110 in the summer will be amazing. But, but we can't control the wind, can we? You can't, we can't do that. The wind blows where it wants to blow. We don't call the wind to blow on us. We don't have the power to do that. We don't choose to be born again. God chooses us. Because of the Spirit's work in our life, we experience this second birth, a spiritual birth, a birth that brings us into the kingdom of God. It's not about our work. It's not about our choice. It's not about a prayer that we've prayed. It's not about an aisle that we've walked down one day. It is about God's work in our life causing us to be born again. That's how it happens. That is absolutely remarkable that God would choose us, that God would come and that God would birth again, re rebirth a person who has absolutely no care for him at all, who is his enemy. It's absolutely remarkable. But that is the love. That is the mercy. That is the grace of God. And the reason this can happen is even more amazing. And so how is it possible for us to be born again? We know the Spirit must, must work in our life to cause us to be born again. But how is that even possible? Our God is a holy God. He is completely set apart from us. He is righteous and good. We are the complete opposite of God. We are absolutely wretched sinners who live in rebellion to him. We are not holy. We are not righteous. We are not good. We are spiritually dead, completely opposed to God. We deserve nothing but God's wrath to be poured out in our life. And so how can a holy God save a people that he should punish? That his character says that he can punish. How can God save us and still be holy and just at the same time? Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God is able to provide us with spiritual life. He is able to cause us to be born again, to invite us into his kingdom while remaining holy and just because of Jesus' punishment on our behalf. That's what the wilderness episode is foreshadowing that, that you see here that you would read about in the Old Testament. 
It is foreshadowing the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. Jesus did what we are incapable of doing. Jesus lived a perfect, holy, and righteous life. And instead of experiencing the blessings and the rewards of that, he experienced the curse, our curse. Our sin was placed on him and he died in our place. The very pain and death that he did not deserve, he got, he took for us. We are able to enter into the kingdom because Jesus experienced the fiery wrath of God on our behalf. And so it's not about our work, but it's about Jesus's work. It's about his work on the cross that allows us to enter into the kingdom. It is about his work on the cross that allows God to remain holy and just while we are able to enter into his presence. And that is simply remarkable. The father gives his son, his only son, to die for us. Not only does he cause us to be born again by the Spirit, but he gives his Son to die in our place so that we might enter into his holy presence, so that we might experience eternal life in his kingdom. That is simply amazing that God would do that. The Father gives his Son, his only Son, to die for a people who absolutely hate him, who want to take him off of his throne and sit there as the king of their own life. We care nothing about his kingdom. We love darkness. We run from the light to the darkness as he talks about in verse 20. But God sends his spirit and his son to give us life so that we might have access to his kingdom. And he does this because he loves us and he wants us to experience his love. God does not need our love. God does not need us to be a part of his kingdom, but God loves us so much that he wants us to experience the love relationship that has existed for all of eternity in the Trinity. God loves us so much. He wants us to experience that love. He wants us to experience a relationship with him. He wants us to experience his eternal kingdom with him. God's love for a rebellious world is unheard of. I don't know about you, but, but I would have a hard time freely giving of myself or freely giving of my son for somebody who absolutely hates me. But God doesn't allow our hatred of him to stop him. Instead, he loves us. He cares for us. And this drives him to provide us with a new birth and the way to enter into the kingdom. And this is simply remarkable. And it should cause us to want to know more about this God. A God who would send his son and give his spirit and give us new life. It should cause us to be drawn into him, to be captivated by him. See, God doesn't just give us the potential for salvation. God guarantees his salvation through the work of the Spirit and Jesus' work in our life. And a God that would do that for us, a God that would do that for a sinful, rebellious people who absolutely hate him, it's remarkable. It should captivate us. It should draw us in. That's what should drive our worship when we're here on Sundays. It's not about traditional music. It's not about contemporary music. It's all about Jesus. We're all about making Jesus' name famous. And so when we see how amazing Jesus' grace is, when we sing about the Lamb of God, we should think about the cross. We should think about what Jesus has done for us. We should think about the Spirit's work in our life, and we should sing loudly. We should praise God. We should 
praise him because of that. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It is all about Jesus and praising and worshiping him for the salvation that he has given us. A God that would do that for us is a God that should captivate us. And so are you captivated? Are you captivated by Jesus? Are you captivated by his love and his care and his concern for you today? Are you captivated by Jesus?